The woman was clearly malicious, making up some story to mess with my head. Was I the victim of a trick that my friends were playing on me? Were they all going to have a good laugh at me afterwards? I was sure that I was not dreaming, nor was I drunk, and there was no question that this was my house. Why should I have to confirm the identity of my own house? I know everything in it, and everything in it knows me. My books, all stolen from my friends, pictures of my dead friends, Hussein, Azet, and Khalil. My bed that used to be a sofa, the peeling paint of my walls, seven black hairs from the head of a girl from Haifa who had surreptitiously visited me a few weeks ago, stuck on top of the words, all my love from Haifa, written in black ink made from a combination of beer and coffee. Later, I had covered up the hair and the writing with a picture of my father in case my previous affair was discovered by a new woman who had promised to pay me a visit. My dirty plates, my God, did she think I would not recognize my own plates covered up with my own dried up leftovers? My old stale bread and jam on the table, my horrible mattress, which has never seen daylight, my worn out carpet that I found in the bin near the house of an important government official, my dirty curtains that a friend who actually hates me gave me when he stole a better quality set of curtains from a carpet shop left open when the owner went to pray, the half-empty bottles of beer that my guests had left before they had fled to their own towns, afraid of the increasingly bad security situation in this city that kills itself little by little every day. But here was this woman and her knife, her tender, white, unruly breasts that were largely covered by her crossed arms, her mobile phone in front of me, and the smell of lemon coming through the window which hung heavy over everything in my room. But... Oh, God. Was it really my room? That was Marsha Links-Quayli reading an excerpt of the short story Get Out of My House by Ziad Khaddash, uh, which is part of a new anthology called The Book of Ramallah by Kama Press, uh, edited by Maya Abu al-Hayat. Uh, this is episode 65 of the Black Podcast. I'm Ursula Lindsay. I'm in Amman, Jordan. And Marsha is in Rabat, Morocco. Hi, Marsha. Hello. And I would just add that the story was translated by Raf Cormac. Yes, of course. I do. Um, there were so many things to mention about the book <laughs> <laughs> between, between the author and the publisher. And the I was, I, I yes, definitely. We should mention on each story that we'll talk about uh, who the translators are. M- many of them are people that we know and names that I recognize, which was kind of... Um, fun. And uh, so we'll be talking about this, this, this book today, this anthology of short stories uh, built around the theme of this major Palestinian city. And uh, this is part of a bigger series. Kama Press puts out these books regularly um, about cities in the Arab world and elsewhere. Yeah, so it's called the Reading the City series. I don't know how many there are in total, but this is the fourth book, uh, fourth Arab city in the series. Uh, There have also been a a book of Khartoum, which was co-edited by Raf Cormac, um, a book of Cairo, which was edited by Raf, and a book of uh, Gaza, which was edited by Atef Abu Saif. and, and each of them is very different uh, because, of course, the cities and the styles of writing in the cities are, are also very different. I mean, I don't read a lot of short story collections. It's not maybe my favorite uh, type of book, but I liked the stories in this collection. And I, and I think 
the concept simple, I mean, it's simple as it is, but of building stories around a city, of course, works quite well because so much writing is often grounded in a city. Um, you know, whole whole literatures seem to have pretty much arisen out of particular cities, whether it's Cairo or Paris or, or London. And, and, and I think it, it works well as a concept. Yeah, I think short story collections can anthologies can be difficult because, right, because you have to make a new investment in each world that you come to. Um, whereas a novel, you're just making an investment in one world and, and it's continuing on. A short story, it ends, and then you, you've invested so much in that world, you come to the next short story, and it, it takes like emotional energy to, to come to grips with this new world again. But here, it's each of these is, is a different world, and they have very different styles, realist, surrealist, satiric. Um, but, but yeah, you, you come to the sa- see the same places on Manara Square over and over again, um, the same checkpoints, um, and, and you, you just see different angles of the city. Yeah, and we, maybe we should talk about the city itself a bit. I mean, we've both at least passed through there. I think both of us as participants in the Palestine uh, Literature Festival um, right. I don't know if yes. that, that was, that was my experience of, right. of going through Ramallah. Um, and, uh, they had an event at this lovely, uh, cultural venue. I think it's the, um, the Sakakini center, right? I was going to say Sakakini and then I second guessed myself. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, um, it's a beautiful venue. Yeah. Yeah. It was lovely. Um, and it, it, so, and so, I mean, th- this is explained partly by um, Al Hayat in the introduction. But Ramallah is a city that probably would have never been more than uh, a village uh, up in the hills um, of of Palestine, if not for the establishment of Israel and the wars that followed and the occupation, because so many people were driven up to Ramallah from other. Palestinian cities and took refuge there. And then Ramallah became the sort of administrative capital. Um, During the uh, Oslo Accords in particular, yeah. Right. Um, with all that that sort of, um, maybe I'll read a little something from the introduction because I think it puts it, you know, best. Mm. Um It says, uh, to many writers, Ramallah is an ideal, a dream, a promise. Many expatriates returned to the city in the 1990s in the wave of optimism generated by Oslo, having spent decades in exile, longing to return to at least part of their homeland. Their expectations on returning were sky high and were only shattered by the reality they found in the ongoing occupation. In his novel, Aysa Ramallah, the poet Murid Barghouti experiences this moment, looking at the gun being carried by the IDF soldier at the crossing. His gun took from us the land of the poem and left us with the poem of the land. In his hand he holds earth, and in our hands we hold a mirage. Ramallah represents this mirage, this glimmer of hope that isn't real to many writers. Indeed, the popular use of Ramallah in the title of recent novels builds on this set of expectations Palestinian readers have of the city. Ramallah Dream by Benjamin Bart, Blonde Ramallah, 
and crime in Ramallah by, by Obed, Yahya, and so forth. Yeah, I think she, she gives a very um, compelling portrait in her, in her short introduction of a history of the city. So, you know, that she mentions it is, it, the name Ramallah can be traced at least to the 12th century, although there's, she quotes the, the legend of um, some guy Rashid al-Hadidin fleeing from Jordan after a disagreement from a, with a, a Muslim family and going to settle there in the 16th century and forming this uh, Christian village of, of Ramallah. But it, that it doesn't show up like the first town council re, uh, was recorded in 1908. So it's not, it, it, and one of the interesting things I think is, is as I'm thinking about Palfest, Ramallah is, it's a struggle for me to remember I remember Jerusalem very clearly. I remember Khalil very clearly. I remember Akka very clearly. Um, but well, Ramallah, not as much. I mean, I, I think that's accurate in the sense that Ramallah is not like famous for being particularly beautiful. It's not an ancient city with the kind of like great, you know, heritage and architecture uh, of Akka, of Jerusalem. It doesn't have the like landscape of, of Haifa. I mean, it has these sort of nice views because it's up on the hill, although the views are of parts of the country that people have no chance of, you know, in many cases ever revisiting. So it's, it's, it's very bittersweet. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I don't think it's, what I remember though a little bit is a feeling of relaxation there Mm, that I yeah. didn't have in other parts. And I think that's because, um, I mean, because it is a, you know, Palestinian administered, I won't say controlled because the Israelis still have the right to come in and, and they, and they control every point of access. Like they do to sort of all areas of the occupied territories and they have come in in like, you know, raids and all sorts of violent incursions over the years. But, day to day there when i went there it was a sort of um there wasn't uh it was a relaxed moment i guess as relaxed as things can get uh in terms of relations uh right. in, you know with the israeli army and and so you did have this feeling of like i i think that's probably what's maybe appealing to a lot of people of like a, a, a an atmosphere that felt like less tense than somewhere certainly like i mean forget uh you know, not Khalil, like, uh, yeah. right, right, yeah, right. Or, and and Jerusalem, Hebron, right, yeah, yeah. And I do remember, of course, the walk that um, Rajesh Hada took us on um, outside of Ramallah, um, right. which was also, you know, a sort of this beautiful exterior, but sort of hemmed in by the shadow of, of walls all around. And I think. Each of these, maybe not each of these stories, but most of these stories, um, in some way struggles with autonomy, and um, and yes, maybe they have control over their lives within a small area, but then to pass through a checkpoint to um, to get somewhere else to visit someone, they have to put themselves or or you know in at the Kalandia checkpoint to go between every day to. Um, through the checkpoint is is to lose that autonomy. Yeah, and even within, I mean, uh, there's like the presence of of soldiers, 
in 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 plenty of the stories like coming into the neighborhoods or of informers it's a very creepy informer in one of the stories right. that i read sort of following people around um and uh i i liked sorry which one is the story i'm trying to remember it's the one that's set in the like 1960s i think and the character is um is sort of insecure because Ramallah is the big city to him and he's come from a village. I'll find the ti- I'll find the title. Do you remember that one? Yeah, which one? Um uh I think that it is a tragic, a tragic ending. ending by uh, yes, by Mahmoud Shukair. And translated by our friend Soraya Alayas. Yes. Um, yeah, I enjoy, I enjoyed that one partly because it's it, it it is from it is set like already I think forty fifty years ago. Uh, not that much has changed. Um, there's this this young man sort of trying to find his place there. There's this atmosphere of frustration. He uh, is. Um, uh, you know, a sort of budding underground communist. He wants to join this group, but there's also all this surveillance um, and all this tension and then all this tension on a personal level too, because he's like looking for love and, and trying to figure out what kind of a relationship he wants. And there's a, there's a sort of question of personal freedom too, for him and for the women that he's interested in. Right. Um, uh, which I think is also a theme that comes up again and again is both political oppression and then also sort of how to just be free as a woman, as an individual. Uh, in how to a have st- a romantic relationship, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Comes up again and again. How can you have, you know, particularly in love and Ramallah, um, but how can you have a relationship in in you know and and I I think in a tragic ending as well there's this who who is in what is real who is in charge who's in control of this narrative uh, as well yeah I'm mean, so love and Ramallah is by Ibrahim Nasrallah and I really liked that one as well it's the opening story yes. of yeah. the of the collection um, it has that kind of combination of light and dark and humor and pathos that I find like very charming and affecting and always kind of always gets me you know so there's sort of little vignettes some of which are 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 quite humorous um and then of course though the the sort of one of the most dramatic incidents in the story is when all these people are taken off a bus at a checkpoint and these really soldiers amuse themselves by saying that they can only go on if a man they pick at random will kiss a girl they pick at random. Right. Um, yes. And they say, you know, very pointedly, well, I thought you, it, it, this seems to be sort of right after Oslo, right? Uh, I thought you Palestinians wanted your autonomy. I thought you wanted to be able to make your own choices. You know, when the guy is obviously kind of some flummoxed by, do I, you know, sexually assault a woman at the behest of this soldier, or do we turn back and and the whole bus full of people doesn't get to go where it want, uh, doesn't get to go where they want to go? But then when he does make a choice, which is his choice is no, let's turn the bus around. Mm-hmm. Um, the the soldier starts to beat him until the woman leaps in and s- insists that that he kiss her. Yeah, it's. I mean, as in all, so many of these 
situations of complete power imbalance, it's a false choice. There is right, no choice. Right. There is no choice. He did make a choice, but then uh, the right. choice was just yanked right away from him. Right, right. And at the same time, it has these kind of sort of throwaway lines. Like when they approach the checkpoint, he's with a friend and his friend says, one day we will have a checkpoint here. And then and the narrator answers, can you see how grand our ambitions are now? And I, and I just love, I mean, I just, I, I really appreciate this, um, this, this combination. Uh, I think it's very graceful. Um, yeah, no, there's a wonderful, um, so that, so it's basically in three parts, um, with one character, you see a friend of the guy who is um, pulled aside on the bus being the, the narrative thread that exists in all three of them. And in the last part, he he's with his auntie then. So the bus does make it through. He finally gets to his auntie. And they're talking about him carrying roses on the bus. And, you know, it is a somewhat like a lighthearted conversation, love and uh, w- what is embarrassing, carrying roses or, you know, bombardments. What are we ashamed of? Does she ever tell her husband that she loves him? My goodness, no. And then uh, in the end, seemingly maybe to distract the soldiers, I don't know, she calls out uh, to her husband, this old woman, that she loves him. And he's sort of baffled for a moment. And then he calls back that he loves her too. And the, the soldiers are like, what are these fucking Palestinians? They're, they're off their nut old people calling out, you know, it's just a very funny line. Mm. Yeah. Uh, were there any other ones that you particularly liked? I, I mean, I loved Get Out of My House. <laughs> right. My, so that's the one we read from. That's the one you read from in the beginning. And maybe we should explain, I mean, there's not much plot, but maybe we should explain a bit more what the plot was. Right. I mean, it is also a funny um story in that it I in that it it's acceleratingly surreal. So the guy comes home, he's called Ziad Khadash, um, to what he assumes is his own house, because you know, there there are his dirty plates and his horrible mattress and his curtains that he stole. Or somebody gave him that they stole, something like that. He steals his books from his friends. Right. He the steals cur- his books from the his curtains friends. come from somewhere else, and he finds. I like the rug that he finds outside of the house of a government official. Right. It's a great description, right? But then there's a woman inside, and she is equally convinced that this is her house, um, and you know it, it accelerates. The um, he insists she pulls a passport out of a drawer. When they both look at it, he sees his name and she sees her husband's name. Um, Then a policeman comes by and I think he looks at the rental contract. He sees somebody else's name. And then finally the landlord shows up and he said, no, this is, I can't remember, Fadzi or something. This is some, this, I've rented it to a student who's now up visiting family and I think Janine somewhere. Um, uh, it, It doesn't belong to any of you people. And right. so in the end, the, the, um, the, uh, not, you know, not to spoil it because I think the, the beauty of the story is in all the details, but in the end, the guy's wandering outside, but it's, it's a wonderfully like, um, he's not like weeping and gnashing his teeth and pulling out his hair. I'm crazy. He's just like, huh? Huh? Wandering the city, <laughs> lighting a cigarette. Mm. 
Well, I mean, not to read, one hesitates with Palestinian literature because you sort of don't want to like read everything, read the occupation into everything, every aspect of it, right? But right. this, this, you know, the the sort of surrealness in which you might come home and your house might be gone is not a far step from actual experiences that people have gone through. I mean, you know, when you have people whose homes are like, you know, bulldozed or they are forced to demolish their own homes so that they won't be fined or their homes are like cut off on all sides by a wall, like between them and their field. Uh, you know, there there is a level of, of surrealness uh, and that's a kind word Right. to like daily Palestinian life, you know, where so many things happen that are not fair, not reasonable, not explicable. Like, and I do, I do think that you've, that, you know, creates a certain sensibility within some of the writing. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it is this sort of, of course, you know, he doesn't like that he can't just go home and flop down on his mattress. It's been a long day. But he's it, it's treated as if it's a sort of an everyday thing. These are the sorts of things he's, that happen. He's so nice. He finds this lady in his house who's convinced <laughs> that it's her house. And he's like, listen, if you need a place to stay, right, you, yes, can, right. you can stay here tonight. I'll just sleep on the couch and then we'll figure this out. Right. Uh, you know, which again, not to like romanticize people, but that kind of like you know, kindness and solidarity and, and, and again, like willingness to just roll with, with all sorts of uh, difficulties. I think what you're seeing is how much that is like the part of people's existence. Right. Right. Um, Whereas she has a slightly different perspective. I think, you know, spending the night with a man who's not her husband in the same house may not be a whatever. Right. Not be a choice that she wants to make. Yeah, no, she's that's not. So she's her, like, sorry, this idea. is my house. Right, get out. Um, but you you mentioned um, Raja Shahada, and he's probably the writer that I I guess in a way associate the most with Ramallah, just because I know his work the best, um, and and also had you know got a chance to meet him during Palfest, but he's you know written. I think his family is actually originally from Ramallah and they had moved to Jaffa or Haifa and then uh, had to move back, mm. uh, I, I would guess, in 48. Um, and his his father, you know, so so they're actually, I think, originally from there and he's lived there for many, many, many years and he sort of wrote uh, maybe his most famous book is Palestinian Walks, which is this very personal account of the changing landscape of the occupation through stories about walks that he took as a kid, as a young man, and then later in life. Um, and, and so he, it's a way of, of, of describing in a lot of detail the actual like geography of the occupation and, and the ways in which you know, Palestinian communities were very purposely separated from each other so there would right. never be contiguity, and then the ways in which um, their, you know, their 
their autonomy is actually like severely limited by the fact that they can't exit and enter these places freely, like the bypass roads that the Israelis created. And then because he worked in a legal organization for many, many, many years, fighting basically through Israeli law, fighting land expropriation, he knows all the mechanisms that were used under military occupation, all the stratagems that were used to dispossess communities of their land and prevent them from building while letting settlers build. And, and so it's it's a sad but very brilliant book that kind of gives you over time a very detailed, you know, series of examples of all the ways in which Palestinians have been pushed off of their land in many cases, um, you know, denied all sorts of the rights, not just of citizens, but of normal, of uh, under, of people that are militarily occupied and, you know, and um, prevented from like developing their cities in a normal way, like Mm -hmm. prevented from controlling their own services, their own resources, from building their own houses. And since he lives in Ramallah, Ramallah features really, really prominently in this. Um, And it's also a critique of the Oslo process, which I think he was uh, skeptical of from the beginning because uh, they, you know, a lot of people could see that the framework of it gave the Israelis the opportunity to continue expanding settlements and to prevent the actual establishment of a Palestinian state in the end. Right. So it's very much about the like physical geography, right? Like that you you have to see, you know, what's actually happening, uh, and uh, and I think that's sort of the the dark the flip side and dark side of Ramallah is it's 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 so associated with Oslo and its failings and with being an administrative capital and with being the PLO city. Right. And also like an NGO city, as she kind of mentions in the in the introductions, right. there's also sort of a spike in costs for Palestinians for living in the city where also it's it's filled with international NGO workers. Right. And where and 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 she uses the word mirage where like where this facade of an of independence and development and all this money poured in right after Oslo, I think. Like, right. And 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 everybody sort of pretended that it was just going to work out, um, where you know it 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 was never possible given the framework of those agreements um, for for Palestinians to like achieve anything resembling a state, and we are at a point now where that is just more and more explicit that the Israeli project is to never, I mean, grant Palestinians the two-state solution is, is you know, the only people who still talk about it, I think, are like the Europeans and the Americans because they don't want to admit that it's not happening because then they'd have to figure out what else to support. Mm. And and they can't. Right. Well, the, the, in the two-state solution allows you to do nothing. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, it's just a convenient uh, – 
But anyway, I really recommend uh, Shahada's books. I mean, I mean, he's written a, a, many other ones too, a memoir, a story about like a very long friendship that he had um, with actually a young Jewish man, a young Israeli, um, and, and this book, Palestinian walks and others. And I think he's, there's one called travels with my uh, Ottoman uncle travels with my Ottoman great uncle. Anyway, travel, maybe it's travels with my Ottoman uncle that I really liked because it's got a very long historical lens on Palestine. Cool. Um, and yeah. And then of course, you know, the other, you know, very, very famous book set in Ramallah is, is Murid Bakuti's I Saw Ramallah. Right. Right. Which is very much a sort of, yeah, post-Oslo coming back after, I think it was, it must've been, of course, 67 that he was studying in Cairo at the time and he couldn't go back home. And then after Oslo, it's about, about crossing the bridge, about, coming back to see the city that is no longer his city, um, you know, very much in, in, I think in the, in the vein of it being a beautiful mirage. So I read that book so long ago that I have, I, you know, all, you know how you, when you, you read a book, like probably almost 20 years ago, 15 years ago, all that's left is how it made you feel. Yeah, right. I mean, that's pretty much it. And uh, so I remember it being good. Right. Um, that's <laughs> right. the, I, I remember it being good. And I remember like the language being beautiful and the story being sad. It's a, is it a very, it's like a, is it's focused a, a lot just on the sort of experience and description of the actual sort of moment of return. Is that right? Right. Like, I mean, narrowly I, okay, so focused? It was, right. It was translated by Ahdef Swift. And I, I, I too, I remember actually my memory has been somewhat overwritten by his memoir, I Was Born Here, I Was Born There, which was published um, much later in 2010 or 2011, um, which is his sort of follow-up memoir to I Saw Ramola. Um, and, um, since I read that more recently, it's 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 clearer. But I think you know it does it does shift between sixty seven and being on the bridge between his memory then and his memory and and seeing Ramallah in the moment. Um, and I I think you know it's very powerful in its in its evocative detail and its poetic language. You know he was was primarily a poet. Um, Right. And also I'm 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 guessing that one of the reasons that it read so well is because it was translated by Ahdaf Suev. Like I yes, remember it reading right. very beautifully. Yes, it was beautiful. And I I remember I went to um an event at AUC once where she talked about the process of translating it. And I I think it's sort of as I remember, she talked about it coming out all as one, like she was reading it and she spoke the translation into um into I hope I'm not completely making this up. <laughs> it's a good story if you are. It's a nice. It's a nice account. Sorry, Ahdev. but I makes think her sound. No, makes her sound cool. Makes her sound badass. She just like. <laughs> I think this would have been a long time ago, but and we should mention. I mean, we've mentioned the Palestine Festival of Literature now multiple times, and Ahdaf Suef, the Egyptian British novelist, is the 
created this festival. I mean, she's been always like very deeply um, interested and committed to Palestine solidarity work. Um, and, and, and this is one of its big manifestations. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and translating, I saw Ramallah was also, I think, part of that larger mm. project. Um, and also, um, Mahmoud Darwish went back yes. to Ramallah and, um, when he was finally able to, able to right, basically. Right, right. Um, yeah. I think there were a number of, she does mention a number of writers who left, um, Tunis or, or wherever they were and returned to Ramallah after um, Oslo. It must have been like a very interesting time. I mean, that the sort of Palestinian diaspora had at least a place where where the sort of cultural and political diaspora could come together, even under these imperfect conditions. You right. imagine it must have been a very exciting time. I think Mahmoud Darwish had sort of been slowly making his way back. So he was in Amman first, and then finally, you know, went into the occupied territories and, and lived in Ramallah and then was buried there. And I've actually been meaning whenever I have the chance to go again, uh, to travel again anywhere, uh, I'd like to visit his mausoleum and, mm. and see what that's like. Um, yeah. And as she mentions, there are so many cultural institutes and foundations. Tamar Institute is in uh, based in Ramallah. Um, different, you know, museums, foundations, authors, you can, you know, she makes it sound like you walk down the street and you run into fellow novelists. Right. And she also describes it as one of its many contradictions, right, is that it's a, a relatively open place, but still, you know, enclosed and, you know, a place where you can find some sort of refuge, but don't quite feel safe. Like, right. I, I mean, it has all these contradictions of a sort of as as home as you can get, but not quite enough. Right. Yeah. No, my um. so I wrote a piece about this collection and the editor sort of gently teased me about the number of times I used the word checkpoint in my um in my in my review. <laughs> but I think it's something that that, you know, in my defense, <laughs> I think it's something that recurs in the stories. Like there's, there is um, a, a Ramallah where there is this illusory, um, perhaps autonomy. But then it's you know, like Surda Surda Ramallah Ramallah. You're going in one. You're people are fleeing in one direction, and then they're turning around and fleeing in the other direction. Uh, there is there is nowhere safe. It, and, um, and then there's the, you know the horse's wife, which is a story. Um, the really weird story by Ahlam Bashara where that takes place entirely during lockdown inside one one apartment, and yet it also you know mentions checkpoints. Right. I mean, the city was besieged so many times. Um, I mean, the famous siege of Arafat's compound, and then and then multiple sieges of the entire city itself, and. I think it's like lockdowns and curfews are like really part of its DNA. Mm. Like people are prepared. Maybe that's true of all Palestinian cities, 
I certainly remember talking to a Palestinian friend at the at the beginning of the pandemic. He actually lives in Jerusalem, and and he and he was like, "I'm ready for this." <laughs> he was like, "I've got my giant barrels of oil. I've got my giant bags of flour. Like we, I always have that ready." And you know, it was like you know the curfews, the lockdowns, all that stuff that 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 we've been going through. Of course, that has been part of you know something that people have been dealing with for, you know, generations. Right, right. Yeah, and um, so the the last story in the collection by Amir Hamad at the Kalandia checkpoint, um, it's like, um, you know, I think you have to maybe come up. So the horse's wife is on COVID lockdown, not, mm. not occupation lockdown. Um, but How do you becomes, tell the difference? <laughs> it becomes this extremely, well, because she tells you, but yeah. uh, otherwise, no, I don't think you would know. It's this extremely surreal um, way of dealing with um, with this locked-in life. And uh, the Kalandia checkpoint is this extremely um, over-the-top satiric way. You know, how do you, how do you, how do you grapple? How do you still maintain yourself um, in in the face of you know not having any control of your walk to university in the morning? Well, you know, of course, one way to do it is through this over the top satire. I think just mm. give you some feeling of agency. You, you, um, at least that's 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 the sense that it gave me. Um, because I, so I also last night watched this film um, called The Present in the Sense of Hidea, um, A Gift, which is um, up for an Academy Award for Best Live Action Short Film. And um, not to sort of harp on, you know, um, my editor is again, I hope she's not listening, you know, not to again <laughs> focus on checkpoints, but, but um, the film opens with this incredible scene. Um, which apparently was shot guerrilla uh, filmmaking on location at um, Israeli Checkpoint 300 near Bethlehem in, in the early morning. And it is people shoving through uh, this checkpoint early in the morning and people kind of climbing up on the cage walls above. And it's like this extremely suffocating uh, yeah. scene. And then most of it takes place as they, um, the, it's, it's a husband, a wife and their, and their daughter, Yasmin, and it's, she's a wonderful young actress, um, uh, as they try and go shopping in Betunea, which is about just a couple miles west of Ramallah. And it's, it's the couple's anniversary and Yusuf, uh, the husband who has back problems, which also, you know, made me feel extremely, <laughs> Uh, sympathetic for him. Yeah, totally. Solidarity. <laughs> We've got solidarity with back problems here. If you work as a writer or in any sort of office job, I don't know, you know. Yeah, how do you not have back problems, honestly? Yeah. Uh, so he and Yasmin, who must be eight or nine, go to try and buy an anniversary gift. Um, and there is, uh, you know, the checkpoint that is right by their apartment that they must get through. Um, and then uh, it's this, it's a, it's a refrigerator that um, that they buy. You know, and it's all, it's about the sort of 
um, mundane purchase of this thing. And there is a, you know, you definitely won't spoil it. Um, there is a sort of a wonderful ending, uh, ending that was surprising to me. And I cried <laughs> from surprise and relief at the end. I was going to say, I've been like, I've been, I've been tensing the entire time you're telling this plot because. That I, that I'm going to spoil it. No, I'm not no, going to spoil it. I'm not going to spoil it. Something bad is going to happen because, because, you know, the possibility of something bad. And so how do you watch the film? Is it Oh, it is, it is exclusively available and not to make an advertisement for Netflix, but it is on okay. Netflix. And it okay. said in the uh, announcement that it was not available in Francophone North Africa, but I didn't, it was available for me. So was it made by, was it produced by Netflix? No, um, but I guess they bought the rights to it okay. to to stream it currently because it is on the and it's I up for it's up for an Oscar. It's an up for an Oscar in best live action film, and I would like to mention that it was directed by Farah Nabulsi, co written by Farah and Hinshufeni, who is a, a Palestinian poet and a wonderful person. <laughs> well, when you were talking, as you started to talk about this movie, when you were talking about people's Palestinian people's need to find forms of agency in an environment in which obviously that's taken that's taken away and and you know you're forced into these like 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 humiliating situations all the time I mean people mm. having to like scramble through these checkpoints right like you're put in a position where it's incredibly difficult to act dignified Right. Exactly. And, and, exactly. And, so the man is standing there with his daughter and they, what are you doing? Um, you know, like, why do I have to tell her? I just live right here. I want to go buy some, I'm, I'm my right. shopping. What are you going to, you know, and he starts to be very actually sarcastic and to read off his shopping list. And then his daughter is looking at him like, please, daddy, can we just get through? And he, he puts away his list and is so, cr- that particular moment was so crushing. Was it you who said recently, somebody said recently to me, now I don't remember where the quote is from, but like that the worst thing that you can do to a person is humiliate them in front of their children. Oh, no, not me, but but certainly, yes, humiliating someone in front of, it, it was just so, that that moment to me was so, I wanted him to go on being sarcastic um, <laughs> to but but of course you know um but you run real oh, risks he did. i mean the yes, risks are so right. high did the end risks up are so being, high uh, i mean so i won't spoil anything but yes don't don't <laughs> sorry, don't sorry. don't tell me but we can just say that in general i mean like you can get you can get shot at a checkpoint by a 19 year old israeli soldier and like they have never been held they are never held accountable for these killings you know like if they get sentenced, which they almost never, never, never do, it's it's for like six months. I mean, there is a sort of, there's a whole side, a majority public opinion and political view in Israel, which is that soldiers, you know, should never be punished for 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 killing Palestinians because they they are, you know, they're all, those are always terrorists, mm-hmm. you know, regardless. And anyway, we, you, you know, they're against the idea of, of accountability for the army, like on principle, you know, can't open that door. Um, but, uh, but, but this question of agency, I mean, I think, you know, of course there's, 
it's very important to hear Palestinian stories. I mean, one of the ways that you sort of take control when you don't have control is to at least tell your mm. story. Um, and, 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 and that's obviously what like a lot of Palestinian literature and, and film does. And I don't mean to sound, you know, sappy or romantic. It, I, I don't know how much it can change, although I think it can change a bit in, in terms of public opinion abroad, international, like, cause these narratives do kind of matter. Uh, if they didn't matter, the other side wouldn't put so much time and effort into crafting their own and, and trying to like discredit all Palestinian versions of, of reality. Um, but it, it, you know, being able to tell the story, even of your own defeat of your own loss of just saying what's happening to you, I think is hugely important. And even on that level, there's an enormous challenge where like Palestinians aren't believed. Right. I think, and I think there, there, there is also a way of, you know, um, a particular story that, um, people want to hear a particular story that's easier to sell. And so like a way of stripping Otani by, by saying, okay, I want, yes, a Palestinian story, but it must also contain both sides. And this is the kind of story we need. Um, so it's like a way, I think sometimes narratives are like crushed into this framing uh, that that English language U.S. readers or at least editors. Right. Well, I think you're talking about the sort of we need to have two sides view of like a lot of discussion where where there's a huge pressure to like hold events or especially if it's sort of like cultural events or things like this where like both sides are represented, you know, and which parallels the sort of political fantasy, you know, that there's any sort of like negotiation between these two sides, there's two sides, you know, and they just can't come to an agreement as opposed to like that one side has overwhelming like military superiority and power and calls all the shots, right? you know, and the other side can't just like freely negotiate right. with them. Like, yeah, I think some they don't people, have any leverage right. to negotiate. And so, and so they don't want to be sat down always at the same table with them to sort of talk things over because their daily reality is, you know, that they're, they're, they're being killed with impunity. They're being kicked out of their houses. Like, they don't want to legitimize that by by like talking again about it because people have been talking for 20 years ever since Oslo. And meanwhile, the situation on the ground is not changed to their benefit at all, like quite to the contrary. Right. So this is what, right. I think you there's a way of right, actors, I think there's a way of acknowledging that like situations are complex. They're um many things going on among whatever in Palestine without, without saying <laughs> there are two sides that you need to bring together. No, it's, it's an occupation. It's not, <laughs> it's not about two people having different views of things. Right. I mean, um, what's the great, uh, there's a great Darwish quote that's sort of like, we, we're like we sleep in the we're enemies sleeping in the same bed, but we don't dream the same dream. I mean, he's very yes, good again yeah. and again on sort of on sort of saying that you know you've already won, and I acknowledge that. And and 
and he was not, you know, uh, he was open on a personal and on a human level to like uh, Jewish people and Israelis. And he was not like, he never called for, he, you know, he was not a, an extremist or, or a terrorist as all Palestinians are made out to be. You know what I mean? He wasn't intransigent. He accepted the reality of the state of Israel, like so many Palestinians do. Um, but he was so good on saying like, just, but let me tell the truth of what you've mm. done to us and what you continue to do to us. I'm particularly worked up more than usual maybe on this <laughs> issue right now because I, I just I just read this uh, Nathan Thrall piece in the New York Review of Books uh, that is like a magisterial and heartbreaking article about – it's like a book chapter. It's very long, um, and it takes uh, – a particular event in the family in the day in the in in a Palestinian family and sort of zooms out from it to describe like all the obstacles a bit like the movie you're talking right. about you know the 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 legal and economic and and political and physical geography around this family which just has a tragic thing happen and 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 but it is like devastating like i don't think you can get to the end of it without crying even though it's very um uh, understated and and it's also devastating in its critique of like the zionist project and what it's meant for palestinians and so it's it's all uh, around one bus accident yeah, I'm. I, I'm just. I'm actually. I'm actually googling it because I want to make sure I get the name of the person right. It's called uh, a day in the life of I think Abid Salama, um, and uh, it's. It just starts with a father who puts his kid on a bus one morning, and his his son is five and a half. And, and then he gets, he's going on some excursion and then he gets a call and there's been an accident. And the rest of the story is like, you know, him trying to find out what happened to his son, but also like, you know, a description of all these different factors, like how the road that this accident happened on is maintained, you know? Mm -hmm where it goes from, where it cuts through, what their neighborhood is like, like why his kid has to go to this particular school because he has this status. And then when his father's looking for him, all the calculations he has to make about like, well, I can't get into that hospital because it's in that city where I don't have that permit. And like, oh. you know, no, of course, like there's a bus accident and people, the emergency services, it's an Israeli controlled zone, never arrive. And so people just pack children into their cars mm. and start driving them to whatever hospital they can get in. And every single person is having to figure out where can I, what checkpoint can I get through? What hospital can I reach? Where will they treat, where can I get this kid treated? And then all the parents have to try and figure out where their children have ended up. Right. And it's, it's just, no, I mean, whatever. It's, it's, it's devastating. Only read it when you're like in a good solid place. Like, I'm serious. But also, it is really, really an extremely well put because there's a story and then there's the context. And there's a lot of context about the kind of regime that Palestinians live mm -hmm. under. 
and how their lives are regulated and to what purpose. And like, I really, really recommend it. I really recommend it. And uh, uh, yeah. Great. Um, I just wanted to say one more thing about this collection in the context of, of the other reading the series, reading the city books, um, because there is so, um, I read a, quite a while ago. I think it was the first one that came out. Um, but Cairo and, and Reza are both relatively fresh in my mind. And of course, <laughs> Cairo, one of the, uh, sort of things that really most just <laughs> stuck out at me about the collection is that how noisy it was, right? There was so much noise in these stories. I felt like it was in Cairo mm. and, um, and everything, you know, everything happening out in public, you know, like um, girls and guys making, you know, trying to make out but being seen because they're in in a public space. And the in the Gaza collection was very like controlled, locked in, um, hmm. uh, and this had this to me this this Ramallah at for it's it's quieter certainly than the Cairo collection and um and it is it does feel like you have more mobility than the Gaza section but I think there is so much um happening underneath each of the sentences in these in these stories uh that w- that really struck me yeah yeah I think I think you're right and um and I think this is a. I mean, I I, I think this is an, an an interesting book, and it allows people to, I guess, also to travel to a city that you can't otherwise. I mean, not not just now because of Corona, but in general, that is, you know, purposely inaccessible, and whose citizens also can't leave that easily. And so, it it puts you in touch with a place um, that's not that easy to reach. And, uh, and that it's, it's, but that it's, it's important, of course, to, to pay attention to. And it also gives you, I think, many different styles, young writers, uh, established, you know, there's Ibrahim Nasrallah and Mahmoud Shukair, who've won, you know, a million literary prizes and Liana Badr, who are really well known. And then there's, you know, younger writers, Amir Hamad, um, and, uh, it, uh, different styles. And I, you know, another thing I always like about an anthology is that it introduces you to new writers who you may not, um, like I didn't know Ziad Khadash and now I've got to find out Mm. other things that he's written. Okay, cool. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up there for today. Um, it was nice talking to you as always. It was lovely talking to you too. And uh, yeah, and guys, check out some of the stuff that we talked about. Um, and uh, don't forget to uh, subscribe, rate, share the show. Um, we, you know, uh, don't have uh, much in the ways of sponsorship, and we don't ask for anything from our listeners right now. But one of the things you can do that is helpful is help us get more listeners. Um, because the, the, the bigger of an audience, uh, that we have, the more we can, uh, think about some ways, uh, to sustain the podcast, uh, without asking for money from listeners. So if you like the show, do share. 
Um, all right. And thanks. And we'll be back in a couple weeks. Yep. See you all then. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.